How do I know what I think until I see what I say? The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, the first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee, and Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha Coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee... They're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the notebook of Oliver Berkman. Oliver is a best-selling author, and his book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, is a must-read for those of us who are productivity geeks, always looking to maximize the 24 hours we have in a day. In this episode, we discuss how it's so easy to get caught up in that productivity that we don't ask ourselves a very important question. Are we doing the right things to begin with? And this is so important because on average, we only have 4,000 weeks in our bank accounts. So if you're looking to re-examine how you spend that time, my conversation with Oliver is worth a listen. So grab your green notebooks and please welcome to the show, Oliver Berkman. Hi, thank you very much for inviting me. Okay, so I've been sitting here for like two weeks now going back and forth on how to start the interview. And um, I've listened to the hundreds of podcasts you were on a couple of years ago when your book first came out. But this is where I want to start it. I want to start it with something that you wrote about in your book that was highly influential to me like 19 years ago when I started my military career. But uh, you debunked it in uh, <laughs> in a paragraph. It's the Stephen Covey you know, metaphor, whatever you want to call it that you did. And I'll explain this. Um, when I was a, a young officer, I read a book called, uh, you know, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I came across this paragraph and he, Stephen Covey talks about how life is very simple. You have a jar, you put big rocks in first, then you put small pebbles in, and then you put the sand, and then you're able to fit everything nice, neat in life's jar. And I've even heard other examples of it uh, when Dr. Cassie Holmes was on the show talking about how a professor took a, took this, tweaked it a little bit, and he had a Corona out there and the students were like, what's the beer for? And it's like, so you can have a beer with friends um, after you do all this, but you completely <laughs> turn it upside down in your book. Yeah. I want to be careful here because I don't actually think that, you know, I'm, I'm not sort of here to 
take down Stephen Covey and nobody working on time and time management should uh, neglect his important legacy. But here's my problem with that example. Maybe also it's a problem that wasn't so pronounced when the story was first invented. It's not false to say that there's some work to be done to make sure that we give time and space and attention to our big rocks rather than the smaller things, things that don't really matter so much, the trivialities. But the problem with this story is that it has it's rigged, right? Because it has baked into it in the usual telling, it's a challenge to make the, the challenge is like, here are some big rocks, here's some pebbles, here's some sand. How can you make them all fit into the jar? And the challenge is to fit them all in, and you can fit them all in only by putting the big rocks in first. But what this all assumes is that there are only so many big rocks as must ultimately, with enough ingenuity and discipline, be fittable into the jar. And the point I want to make is that I think possibly the human condition, but certainly modern life is an experience of there just being too many big rocks, right? There are just more things that legitimately matter, that it would be totally defensible to spend your time on than you are going to have time to spend on them. And so the real challenge, it's not that there's nothing to be done in terms of arranging things the right way around, but the real challenge is like being willing to accept that you're going to have to abandon some big rocks entirely, being as wise as you can about which big rocks to um, abandon. And it's sort of emotion management. It's sort of tolerating the anxiety or for some people, the sort of sadness that comes with knowing that that's what it's like to be a finite human, right? It's like, okay, we're not going to do all the rocks. So the question is, which ones? The question is not, what is the cunning method for getting them all done? That's exactly what I love because, uh, you know, as I look back on the last, I think I read that book uh, 18, 19 years ago. Um, and as I look back on the 18, 19 years ago, yeah, the problem was never that I needed to nice and neatly put big rocks in a jar. It was figuring out what those big rocks were because there was a lot of rocks mm -hmm. around my jar that were big and they all looked awesome. Right. And along the way, I had to make a decision. And you, you know, you talked about time being finite that we're mortals, which goes to kind of the uh, the subtext of your book and the title of your book, 4,000 Weeks. Yeah, 4,000 Weeks is very roughly the average expected lifespan in the West today. I totally rounded it to get like the headline. The title the worked, worked yeah. perfectly. <laughs> but the other thing, I mean, the th I guess the thing I'm really getting at, and I realized that one, one reaction to that title and it's sort of, I knew that this was going to be one reaction to it, is, oh my goodness, life is incredibly short. We've got to cram it full of important and meaningful experiences. What I'm really trying to say, and I think it's ultimately a kind of a, a relaxing and a liberating and an empowering message, I guess, is that there is such a mismatch between the amount of time we have and the number of things we could do it's like a total mismatch because it's the mismatch between finite number and an infinite number. We have finite finite weeks and, and there's an infinite number of things we could do. Uh, all these infinite supplies of demands made on us, experiences we might want to have, things that would be meaningful for the world for us to do. There's actually a real liberation in in a kind of surrender, in like seeing that it's not a question of you got to work really, really hard to try to get your arms around infinity. It's a question of 
getting your arms around infinity is not something that finite creatures can do. And so I think it's really liberating in that sense to say, well, okay, that's off the table. Doing all the things that feel like they matter is off the table. So all I need to do is pour my time and my energy into a handful of things that I can do and that can you know, move the needle in the most significant way or that matter the most to me. So I always find that ultimately quite a sort of, it's a relief really, because it, it means no longer trying to do something that was never going to be possible to begin with. And I want to point out for our listeners that you're not like some philosopher that is just <laughs> sitting here, uh, you know, just writing stuff down. Like you're, you're a recovering productivity <laughs> addict, right? I say in the book. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm a journalist and uh, sort of trained as a reporter. And But my sort of personal interaction with this stuff, right, is sort of years and years of making myself miserable trying to locate the perfect set of productivity techniques and the kind of inner reserves of limitless self-discipline that would enable me to kind of finally be able to execute on all the things that I felt I wanted or needed to, to do, right? Like everything. So when you found out that you could quickly clear your inbox by like, you know, setting up the perfect email system to make right. more time for yourself, what, what, what right. did you find? Well, first of all, that's a huge struggle. And secondly, yeah, what happens, I think you're pointing to this, is if you get really good at answering email on a quick tempo, what happens is you just get much more email, right? So you don't make your life easier. You make it harder in a way because you reply to people quicker and then they reply to your replies and you have to reply to their replies. Whereas if you just sort of, if you're kind of not so good at email, a lot of people's things that they're emailing you about stop being so urgent or they're sort of, expecting a quick response less so they're less likely to email you in the first place and this is like a standard finding about the sort of unintended consequences of efficiency improvements in every area of life personal productivity energy efficiency you know all sorts of stuff if all you do to any kind of system is just make it more efficient rather than thinking more seriously about what to focus on then all else being equal you'll just attract more and more inputs to that system and it'll be as busy or as busier than it was before. So it's not that efficiency is all bad, but that it, it's never going to be a route to that feeling that we all crave of being in control of our time and like being the master of our time. That can't be got by becoming more efficient because all you're doing is getting quicker and quicker and quicker at making your way through a, an infinite supply of things. So you're never going to get to the end of it. And another problem you bring up is that the problem with just fighting life to be efficient is it doesn't take into account life. You know, like just the example this week, something came up in your life and we just had to move, hmm. move the interview. And then even today, I'm leaving work. My plan is to get home, set time aside to finalize the topics we're going to talk about. I get 30 minutes away from work and realize I left my wallet <laughs> sitting on my desk right. and... You know, I think my previous tendency was to allow my anxiety to just shoot up through the roof mm -hmm. because of that. But I, I think that that's, you know, you're talking about the embracing of being mortal and not fighting to be super efficient. It changes things, right? Right. And I think one of the other things you're touching on there is that it's not only that we have this very limited amount of time, which means that getting more efficient can only ever take you so far. It's also that we have very limited control over that time. And in fact, as other people have pointed out, we don't really have time 
quantities of time at all. You just get one moment after the next. So, you know, the most powerful people on the planet don't actually control what is going to happen in the next five minutes to them. They can certainly do better forecasting than some other people, et cetera, et cetera. But like there's there's this kind of totally sort of democratic status that all humans find themselves in, which is that like you can never control the future in the way that we really want to be able to. So you're sort of persistently being like, well, this is my plan. I'm going to get home and do this. I'm going to have this time. And it's great to make the plan. What we do is we identify with the plan in a way that implies a level of control that you actually don't have. And, and it's not just, I mean, ob- it's most obvious when things come up, right? When your plans are derailed by some interruption, but it's actually true all the time. I mean, there's nothing I ever do in the course of the day where I can ever be certain that it's going to pan out the way I think I need it to pan out. And so there's a real sort of anxiety that comes from constantly asking for this kind of security from the future and never getting it because you know deep down you're never going to know what the future really holds. I want to ask a question now because again, you're like you mentioned in the book, you know, you're a recovering mm-hmm. productivity geek. <laughs> and you know, there there was a time where I felt like every minute had to be managed of my own time to like squeeze the amount of productivity out. And uh I don't know, that's what I want to ask. Like for me, I don't know, like my anxiety is way less. I'm not, you know, it's stressed all the time. Has that changed for you as well since you've kind of embraced this fact that you're immortal with hopefully 4,000 weeks? <laughs> yeah, it's a work, I'm a work in progress. I'm certainly not a perfect embodiment of any of this. I'm not sure I'm sort of more accepting of like death itself or anything dramatic like that, but I think I do just move through the day no longer believing in this notion that it's going to be possible by the end of the day or the week to sort of have all the things done that are calling out to be done. And while some people worry that this is going to leave you sort of doing nothing and sitting on the couch and why bother doing anything, I find the exact opposite, which is like, it's precisely once I've accepted that I'm not going to get through all the things that I'm sort of freed up to make as good a job as I can of one or two of the things, right? And that's what moves a family life or a career or anything or an organization forward is people like doing the things they can to make a difference rather than sort of freezing in the headlights, trying to figure out how they're going to get everything done. And I think it's a great point that you bring up because when we're anxious, when we're worrying, when all those things are happening, we're actually expending energy. Right. Instead of focusing on, like you said, just moving whatever it is that we're focusing on, moving it forward, because we're kind of in this like spin cycle of stress and anxiety. Right, right. And we think also that we can kind of, in indecision or when you're you're frozen in that way or anything like that, you're still actually making decisions all the time. You're just doing it unconsciously. So you're still making a decision to use that hour of your life paralyzed and not taking action. It's hard to express, but there's a very sort of um, alluring feeling that what you're doing is sort of putting life on hold while you just work things out. But you're not putting life on hold. You can't put time on hold. It just, it just keeps passing anyway. So uh, I think that can be really freeing as well to see like, okay, you're always choosing. The only challenge is to try to make slightly more good choices and slightly fewer bad choices. So something you're alluding to is, you know, you talked about one of the chapters and like when I read it, it kind of hurt reading it because I realized I did this. Like I would travel to places and not make any plans at all. 
thinking that I was leaving myself open for like whatever happened, mm-hmm. you know, like for something to come along and and whatever. And what I realized what I was doing was like, yeah, I was actually deciding something. I was deciding to be indecisive. Right. You know, and then I ended up not doing anything. Right. Because I didn't want to close myself off to possibilities. Right. We think the choice we have is keeping our options open or making a choice. But actually, the choice we have is making one kind of choice or making another kind of choice. And and so the one of the examples that I give in the book is like commitment phobia in relationships, right? It's like, I'm not saying that everyone should get married at 18 or something. Like to spend 10 years of your life dating people uh, in a sort of low commitment way is a, totally a choice that lots of people make. And But, but it, it's, it is a choice, right? You're not, you're not holding yourself back from life. You're just deciding to spend those years of your finite life doing that instead of the other thing, which would be to be in a relationship. And, and that works in all sorts of ways, career choices, anything else we do, right? The thing that we're doing when we're kind of holding back from a commitment, it's not that it's never appropriate to hold back from a commitment, but that's its own kind of commitment to spend your time in that way. Another reason we do that, and this is something that I do, is you start having this fantasy about the future Mm-hmm. that like everything's just going to work out. I'm holding out for this one possibility or this other possibility and it's going to go like this, this, and this. But I guess like in this future fantasy that sometimes we play out, you know, there's no time constraints, there's no life constraints, there's no people constraints. Yeah, It's this game we play with ourselves where we think that uh, everything's going to be perfect mm-hmm. if we just kind of again like hold out for this one thing. Right. And it's actually, you know, it's more comfortable in many ways to keep that perfect fantasy alive by not (laughs) starting in on things, right? Because it's like the fantasy stays perfect and nothing stays perfect when you actually bring it into reality. So it's, it's sort of painful in a certain sense of that word to get into things instead of postponing them. And something else too that I want to deep dive with you, Oliver, is this idea of distraction. I've been writing a lot lately about this concept of the hero's journey, that it's something inside of us that we're driven to do. However, we get caught up in distractions of social media, the 24-hour news cycle. And I think it's like really easy for us to blame that on our smartphones, on notifications, whatever. But one of the arguments you make in the book, which I love, is that uh, it's not necessarily the device that's uh, distracting us. Right. It's a sort of two-stage process. And I'm always, you know, totally our devices distract us and totally I'm in favor of taking really seriously that question about whether it's healthy and useful for sort of algorithmic social media to kind of be designed to keep us on those screens as long as they do. But in order to be distracted, You've got to sort of want to be distracted. And that's the bit that I think we don't focus on enough. It's like to hear people talk about digital distraction, which again, I do think is a really serious issue, but to hear people talk about it, you'd have the sense that like what usually happens is I'm just working really happily. And then somehow like Twitter comes and drags me away from my work, but that's not what happens. What happens is my work gets difficult or annoying or boring or intimidating. And I'm sort of looking for something to take the edge off it, numb those feelings out. So I, so that's when you open up the social media. Now, it still makes a difference that when you open up social media, there's legions of people paid to keep you there for the next hour. Whereas if 
in a setting where you respond to distraction by like going for a walk around the garden, you probably come back in five minutes and get on with your work. But it's still really important to see, I think, that um, that, that initial urge to distract ourselves is is very fundamental to this. We sort of it's ironic, but we sort of don't want to do a lot of the things that we say we that we believe we want to do the most because they do bring us into this, you know, things that maths are difficult. Pieces of writing, give example from my life. Yeah, it's like they're hard because you want to do them well and you don't know if you can, or having an important conversation with your spouse or something is makes you feel vulnerable. There's all these different reasons why it would just be so much nicer to just scroll through and look at people having stupid arguments on social media or whatever, you know. So I think that really helps to be aware of that in terms of battling distraction. I want to talk about that. You talk about the arguments too. Like we justify it in our head. I won't say we, I'm going to say I. I justify it in my head, Oliver, of like, hey, I'm going to spend, so for me, writing or you know, even at work, making like a, a very important decision. I'm going to take five, 10 minutes of time, just check Twitter really quickly, and then I'll go back to it. But I'll see an argument or something that, uh, you know, triggers me, gets me thinking. And so in reality, it's not five, 10, 15 minutes of your energy of your focus on scrolling through social media. It's much more than that. Right. Right. And you make this a great point, right? I mean, it's like, firstly, you might just end up on social media for the next hour instead of five minutes. I never do that. (laughs) Even if, (laughs) even if you don't, even if you pull yourself away, or you have like a blocker app installed, like I do, you know, it gives me like doles out little bits of Twitter uh, through the through the week, which is probably actually worse, come to think of it. Than the, <laughs> but anyway, the point is like later on, I'm making lunch, I'm having a shower, I'm going for a walk. And you're still like litigating this, this argument in your head. You're still sort of um, arguing with this person who will never know that you were arguing with them. Or, you know, lots of other examples. If you, uh, one example given the book, I think, is that like if you get the distorted idea from social media that like crime is really high in your city when it isn't, just because social media is based on, you know, showing us the things that are compelling and unusual and shocking instead of the sort of normal stuff, then that's going to change how you walk through your neighborhood or whether you walk through your neighborhood. So, like in all these, and for that example, you can think of a thousand others. If I only ever see political opponents, behaving disgracefully because of the things that Twitter prioritizes, then it's going to be a little bit harder at that family dinner where I know someone has different politics than me because I'm going to associate them with those polling people I saw on social media. So yeah, it spreads out. And it's not just social media. It's just that like our attention is this incredibly meaningful resource and where it goes is how you end up spending your life, right? I mean, if you end up spending all day arguing in your head with somebody who you saw on Twitter, that's how you spent that day. (laughs) And not only that, so like, not only is it starting to, and I was just looking through all my notes from your book um, and I was trying to find where you said it, but not only does it kind of distort your view of the world, there's things that you care about that you want to care about. However, Mm -hmm. it starts rewiring your brain that Mm -hmm. you start caring about things that you didn't want to care about in the first place. And you're not caring about the things that you wanted to care about. It's something like that. I'm messing the quote up, but it was, it was so perfect. Well, thank you. And I don't, I can't uh, quote it verbatim, but yeah, this general notion that the way that the attention economy works is that it is focused on giving us more 
of whatever compels our attention and also very much more ingeniously in a way making us into more willing marks by by what it shows us right it's like it it shows you the things that make you angriest and then it also changes you into the kind of person who is even more reliably made angry by a certain number of things so that it's even easier for the algorithm to serve up the things that make you angry and then you know there's this kind of it's a simplistic way of talking about it but there is this kind of duality we all experience it in our lives between what you might think of as higher interests and lower ones it, it's like that when i say i want to write books for a living i don't mean that every single day when i sit down at my desk the most thrilling prospect is getting on with the book but when i feel that sort of desire to go on social media at the same time that's a very sort of deep appetite of some kind that i kind of don't want to have right so it's like it's not just what you want but what you want to want that's it it's uh you said in the words of the philosopher harry frankfurt yeah social media basically sabotages our capacity to want what we want to want. Right. It starts changing that. Um, all of a sudden we start wanting to take, you know, tropical vacations, you know, and take selfies or, right. you know, do, do whatever, but it wasn't what we wanted deep down inside of us. Right. Right. And I think one of the things I don't really emphasize in the book, but one of the things that ends up happening is it's, it's an attempt, even if it's not conscious on the part of all the social media platforms, it's an attempt to make us more predictable as people, because that's what, that is how you sell to people. You target and you slice and dice the, the demographics. So it's like it's an attempt to subvert what we want to want and to kind of make us less unique in a way as well. So somebody's listening to that and is like, holy crap, <laughs> you know, I've got 4,000 weeks and, uh, you know, I've, I've probably already spent 1,500 of them or whatever, right? Yeah. What advice would you give them to... I won't say to like make, yeah, I guess to make the most of it, but also to realize that it's not going to be perfect. I mean, I think that's really well phrased because make the most of it, of course. But on the other hand, that sort of risks leading you down a kind of rabbit hole. I will say something more practical than this, but I do think that the most honest answer to that is that it is a perspective shift. And I don't mean to say like the only way to get the perspective shift is to read my book. There are other ways to get the perspective shift, but it's like- But it works, it helps. <laughs> it's a question of seeing life a little bit differently, not necessarily in a single epiphany or something, but it's a sense of, it is sort of letting this sense of your own finitude sink into your, under your skin, into your bones, rather than any particular technique or method. It's just what arises from this gradual awareness of what it means to be finite. That said, you know, I think there are definitely approaches to using your time that are in tune with it and approaches that are less in tune with it. So as a starting point, one thing I think that is always really useful is to pick something that you feel like is incredibly meaningful to you, project, nurturing a certain relationship, something like that, but that you know you are postponing, supposedly probably to this time when you've got everything, all your ducks in a row and everything is sorted out. And just push yourself to do to give 10 minutes of your time to that right away today or maybe tomorrow, but not next week because that's like, oh, I'll get to it when I've got these other things done. So just to give a sort of slightly cliched example, if you know that painting is like something that's central to your, to your feeling fully yourself and fully alive, but you just never get around to it, it isn't a question of clearing the decks and getting through all your projects and work until you get this time or booking a week off to do it in six months time. It is a question of like just doing it for a short time today 
And this is the crucial skill, really, not expecting it to feel great. <laughs> That's the thing that I always think is so powerful, right? It's like, it'll feel anxiety inducing because you'll feel like you ought to be doing all these other things. And, you know, I'm not, I suppose I'm not literally advising people to do this on work time or something, but like to the extent that you have autonomy over your time to use a little bit of it now to do the things that really matter and not to expect that to feel great. That's a kind of act of leaning in to use an overused phrase, but sort of leaning in to your finitude, right? Because it says like, it's not about waiting for a moment of truth. It's not about clearing the decks. It's not about getting it all controlled. And then you're going to be able to live this life. It's about doing those things in this life now. It's funny how perfectionistic we can get about this. So you can say to yourself, say, you know, like, I need to be better at being in touch with old friends, or I need to have a better relationship with my children or my parents or whoever it might be. So what you're going to do is, first of all, deal with all your work. And then in a couple of months, you're going to become the kind of person who is like really good at keeping in touch with friends or spending time with their relations. And that quest to become a certain kind of person can really get in the way of just doing a bit of that thing now. Like just send one email. Don't say I've got to have a habit. I'm going to acquire a new habit of sending three emails a day. Just do one thing now. I think that is often the right way forward. This is a writing example, but um, you know, I'm in a very demanding job right now. And I've been wanting forever to write about the hero's journey, but from a perspective of somebody who's always been high achieving and then at some point realizes mm -hmm. there's more to life out there. And so for a while, I was like, there's no way I, I have the time to do this. But what I found was if I literally write 10, 15 minutes a day, which is a very small, very small, yeah, right. Yeah, it's a very small chunk of time that over time that actually adds up to something considerable. And to your point, I hemmed and hawed over this for like nine months. I was like, well, I just, I'll wait until after this job. Um, you know, when the time will be better, I'll have more time. And then one morning I woke up and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to dedicate a little bit of time. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, in just two short months, I found, you know, 11,000 words later, mm -hmm. I was like, wow. Yeah. I see progress. But if I would have waited to that perfect time and then, you know, that example, I've seen it, you know, in my own life with fitness, mm -hmm. family issues, whatever. You're right. We wait for this perfect time in the future that does not exist. Right. Because as you point out in your book, the only time that's guaranteed is like the second that you and I are talking right now. <laughs> right. Oliver. right. Yeah. And just to bring out that out a little bit more, I mean, it's like part of it is obviously in the writing example, if you can write 300 words a day and you do it every day for a year, you won't just have a book, you'll have a long book, right? So part of it, it's just the accumulation of, of little actions. But it's also that to do it now, to do a bit of it today is like, it's a stake in the ground. And it reinforces to yourself this sense of like, this is the time. This isn't a dress rehearsal. Like, this is the life in which I want to write, meditate, get fit, be more present to my spouse. And that would be the thing I'm trying to get at here is that like, that would be valuable even if you never did another 300 words. Even if you went back tomorrow to being like the laziest person in the world or the worst spouse in the world, it's like it matters in the moment because it can only ever happen in the moment. And of course, what you find is that this reinforces that behavior. So actually, you don't go back to 
not doing anything. You, you build on it. But it's valuable in and of itself. It's not just like, well, only an hour of writing or two hours of writing really counts, but I gotta ease, I gotta work my way up to it. It's valuable right here because you're actually living the thing that you care about instead of waiting to do so. And um, again, you talk about it in the book, and hopefully by the end of this episode, people are like, I need to read this book. But um, you talk about it in the book. It's this idea of it's like a uh, a game where let's just say that like you had to live your life over again. What would you have done differently? And then do that. Yeah. It's something like that. I probably just messed it up, but yeah. No, no, it's the, it's true. And I've seen it expressed in lots of different ways. There's that famous quotation that no one really knows where it comes from that says like, we each have two lives and the second one begins when we realize that we have a, only have one, which is a nice uh, paradox. And I've also seen it put, uh, I can't remember who by right now, but like, decide where you want to get in 20 years time and then live from that identity today. You know, just like there's some sense in which if you want to be a writer, you are a writer uh, the moment you do it. And I think that applies to being fit, being a good partner, being a good friend, whatever it is you're doing. It's really easy for the great plan to be a reason why you don't do the thing, which I always find amazing. It's like, okay, I'm going to meditate every day. Oh, then the next week's a bit busy. So I probably won't get around <laughs> to starting that for another week or two. Yeah, no, yeah. Just sit down for five minutes now. Done. You're a meditator. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I love the interview I had with Seth Godin. You know, we talked about this too, is uh, people like us do things like this. And I had that mindset. So I think about that all the time. It's like people like us do things like this. Like what would a writer do right now? Right. And uh, a writer would write. People like us do things like this. What would somebody who was a good husband, good father do right now? And then do that thing. Yeah. And that's kind of been like a North Star ever since I've yeah, heard I love that. that. I love that phrasing. Yeah. One other thing, too, you talk about towards the end of the book, and it goes back to you only get 4,000 weeks, you only get one life. Is this relief of pressure to live? someone else's life. And I think that's something that a lot of us struggle with. And not only is it like what other people think you should do, I think it's also what a younger version of us chose to do. And so, you know, like there were things that I, there were decisions I made at, at 21, 22 that are no longer applicable to me. Right. And so am I going to continue to hold on to those decisions or am I going to try something new now? And I, I just, I love that message that as you get towards the end, hopefully I didn't ruin anything, uh, still read the book. Um, but that, I think that's <laughs> yeah, like- It's not that kind of book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think that's like one of the major insights. I, I thought that was amazing. And I'll even read the quote right now. It says, once you no longer feel the stifling pressure to become a particular kind of person, you can confront the personality, the strengths and weaknesses, the talents and enthusiasms you find yourself with here and now, and then just follow where they lead. Yeah, I think you raise a really good point. I do tend to think of this mostly in terms of social expectations or parental expectations, but there is that factor of past you expectations as well. And that really puts the kind of sunk cost bias issue into perspective, right? There is like, there's no victory in getting to your late middle age and being like, I succeeded in meeting the criteria that 
I laid down for myself at 20. Like yeah. a 20 year old punk laid right, out for right, me. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, you don't, don't trust 20 year old kids. Um, no. Is that, no, no offense. No offense. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, a lot of us can go quite late into life waiting for that sort of endorsement, that rubber stamp that says like, okay, you got to the place that makes it okay. And it's like, you know, it's quite a deep sort of self-esteem, self-worth issue. I think it's we look for some sort of outside endorsement that we're doing it right. And the problem is, firstly, you're probably not going to get that outside endorsement. And that's very true in the case of people who you do see, I think, who like, you know, are still trying to fulfill parental expectations long after their parents are have passed away, right? It's like it's like that doesn't necessarily the person is not necessarily around who's going to endorse this thing. Likewise, your past you is not is not around. But also, even if you got that endorsement, it wouldn't count for anything. Like it doesn't feel good to be living a life you don't want to live and have somebody else say, You're doing great. <laughs> it's like ultimately there has to be this kind of self-authorizing thing where you just say, like, no, I think this is who I am, and I think this is what I can most usefully do. And it's not about being selfish in the sense that like hopefully what you want to do is something that brightens up the world for other people or makes it better or safer or more meaningful but like nobody's coming to say that your set of choices is the right one and so it's a sad way to live to to wait for that kind of endorsement yeah and even if you do get it maybe you know when the person that you were trying to live this life for and achieve all these things tells you like hey great job i'm so proud of you um that feeling lasts for maybe five ten minutes maybe maybe 24 hours Right on the long end, and then it goes away, and now you're kind of stuck with it. And again, I, I keep going back to this stuff I'm writing about because I'm so fascinated with it. But you know, Joseph Campbell says that the hero's journey begins where Maslow's hierarchy ends. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I see a lot of people getting stuck on Maslow's treadmill of constantly living for other people, living for that validation. Yeah, and it's again when you realize that you only have one life. Yeah. And embrace the stuff that you talk about in the book that you can then, you know, live it and not worry about those other things that that pressure is completely lifted. Right. Yeah. And I think it makes me realize as well. I think one of our challenges as parents, not that we should beat ourselves up for doing it imperfectly uh, as with everything, but like one of those challenges is to sort of communicate to your kids that your ambition for them is to like, give full voice to who they are and not like to become a doctor if that's not what they're into or not to be artistic if that happens to not be their thing or sporty or whatever it is, but to sort of blossom in terms of what they're meant to be. And it's difficult, right? Because I can see myself reinforcing with my son things like, you know, certain kinds of writing that he produces. I'm just like <laughs> so naturally thrilled by and I'm sorry, I'm, I have to be as enthusiastic about sporting performance. I have to like put a bit of effort in and remember that like he, he is allowed to diverge from several generations of uh, Berkmans and, and excel in the sporting arena if he wants, right? I want him to feel uh, <laughs> the, fact, the fact that it's not in the, the fact that that's uh, not me does not mean that that's not in him. And so I think that's a really interesting challenge in terms of the, us as people who are communicating expectations as well as living up to or not living up to them ourselves. Yeah. So as we wind down the podcast, Oliver, you've, you've issued like two challenges, like don't screw up your own life 
and then don't screw up. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I'm well aware of the second one. The second one is really prone to like turning it into something you beat yourself up, up with. Like, oh my God, am I, you know, sending all the wrong messages? All of this is just about being good enough and doing one's best, I think, uh, for parents as well as for kids and everybody. Yeah. 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 And I'll even, uh, I'll even quote the book again, just to kind of, kind of end it on a, uh, a high philosophical note. <laughs> you know, you paraphrase Carl Jung. You say the individual path is the way you make for yourself, which is never prescribed, which you do not know in advance, and which simply comes into being itself when you put one foot in front of the other. And I think that's just a great way to end this episode is that as we put one foot in front of the other, as our kids put one foot in front of the other, you know, we discover things about ourselves, they discover things about themselves. And then the, the best we can do is just say to uh to follow that path right you can only ever choose to do the the next right thing to quote Jung or anna from frozen uh, <laughs> who also uh talks about you, <laughs> we're both parents we're just gonna i, work I expect you haven't avoided seeing hearing that song uh so many times, times so, so many times so many times Oliver. this was an absolute pleasure if Folks are interested because I, I know you had a column at The Guardian at one point, which I, I don't think you have. No, I wrapped that up after very many years. So if people are interested in your work, where can they find you? Well, the books, uh, including my early ones as well, are available in all the usual places. And then at my website, oliverberkman.com, I've got other information and you can sign up for my email newsletter there as well. Is there anything in the future, Oliver, like you're putting one foot in front of the other working on right now or, or you're not allowed to say? I won't go into detail just because I find it hard to do the elevator pitch, but I'm working on a I'm working on a new book and trying to remember that just a short amount of time each day will will accumulate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's great. Well, we both reminded each other of that today. Well, Oliver, <laughs> thank you so much for your time, man. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you again for listening to another episode of From the Green Notebook Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us gain visibility and the opportunity to help more people on their leadership journey. Also, make sure you check out our website at www.fromthegreennotebook.com. There, you can listen to past episodes, read leadership articles written by military leaders from around the world. You can sign up for our monthly reading list email where you can learn about new books that are coming out. And our Sunday Reflection email that comes out every Sunday morning is really short. It's a two-minute read but I guarantee you it's going to start your week off on the right foot. Finally, make sure you follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for From the Green Notebook. Again, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. I am humbled by the opportunity to learn these lessons alongside you. So please join us next week for another episode of From the Green Notebook, where we're going to help you lead with the best version of yourself. I came from the